Uh, it's called, uh, He Shall Be Called. If you have a copy of God's Word, uh, I've got a lot of verses today, so good luck. If you're uh, a note taker, uh, we're going to fill those in as we go. Uh, for those of you who um, struggle with paper cuts or if your sword drills need to be a little sharpened, uh, don't worry, all the scripture will be on the screen, and so you, you have no problem following along. Um, our main text, so I guess what we would call the anchor text for this series, is going to be Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verse 6, um, which is going to fit right in with the song we just sung, and I think that's probably part of the reason why they picked that, because um, I, I did tell Drew ahead of time that's where we were going to be, and so uh, very wisely, uh, he and Mary, as they pick songs together, uh, will probably be around that. Um, so as you turn to Isaiah 9, 6, I just want to ask you this question. How many of you have trouble with waiting? I know that I do. Waiting is hard. Waiting is hard whether you're waiting for marriage. Waiting is hard whether you're waiting for a job interview, maybe a driver's license, maybe a college application, maybe a birthday of my youngest son, his his birthday's coming up, and he reminds me almost daily how many days it is until his birthday. Um, maybe if you're waiting for a baby to be born, I know that's hard too. My, my sister-in-law just gave birth. We're going to go uh, be introduced to our, our newest niece today, so looking forward to that. Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, I didn't have much to do with it, but it's fun still. Um, we're waiting for Christmas, you know. That's fun no matter what age you are. Uh, whether it's a kid because you're looking forward to getting presents or whether you're older and you're looking forward to giving presents and watching their faces as, as they receive that, or even if there's no presents and you just get to get together with family or enjoy the holiday or drive through and look at the Christmas lights, I mean, it is a blessed season and it's sometimes hard to wait. Well, we all know, or I hope you know, that the reason for the season is not Santa Claus or Rudolph or packages or boxes or bags, it's Jesus. Christmas is coming as a time that we celebrate our coming king. There is prophecy concerning the Messiah, and Israel had to wait, and waiting is hard. Isaiah's prophecy called for the people to anticipate a person who would come to bring about a foundational hope for not just them, but for the entire world. And so I want to read with you in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which says this, For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this text, but even more than this text, we thank you for the fulfillment of this text. Lord, it is in your name we come before you to honor you and to glorify you, to ask that you would help us to continue to remind us of what the reason is for the season, but not only that, what the reason is for our very existence, why you have created us, what you have called us to, what you have saved us from, where you are bringing us eventually to be, and who you are and how we got there. Lord, we thank you and praise you for today's word. We ask that it would Bless our hearts, and even more than that, help us to glorify you uh, in a greater degree. So be with us now, we do pray. It's in your name. Amen. 
So in that text, the first thing that I want to cover is this term, wonderful counselor. Uh, Jesus is called the wonderful counselor. Uh, Again, it's not on there right now, but Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he shall be called wonderful counselor. So I want to take that name and I want to look at the first part of that name. And that's what we're going to do today is dissect this name. So the first part of that is wonderful. So the first part, if you're a note taker is, uh, he is wonderfully unusual. Just want to make sure it's on there. Yeah. And he is wonderfully unusual. And the first thing is his, his wonderful existence. This is what scripture says about that. John 1, 3. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. You see, every single thing that you have ever come in contact with, it was brought forward by God. Now, maybe what you're saying is, well, I don't remember in scripture where he said, let there be automobiles and let there be internet. Well, okay, you're, you're a literalist and that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, the metal, the ingenuity. The reason that Henry Ford uh, perfected the, the uh, assembly line, which one of my kids was learning about this last week, uh, was because God gave him a functioning brain that he could problem solve, that he had logic. Every single person in this room is here because of God's intimate creation. It says that we were stitched together in our mother's womb. It says he knows every single hair of our heads. It says he knows every thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Nothing is hidden before him. So his existence is wonderful. Believe it or not, God is the prototype for the first Adam. Let us create man in our image, he said. And so he created man and woman in his image. So we are image bearers by his existence. And this is a conversation that I have with the kids in our theology. They're not kids, they're young adults, but you know, the older I get, right? Uh, you all feel me, some of you do. So to some of you, I'm a kid, which still amazes me. I'm glad that, I'm glad that you can make me feel young. Uh, but, but here's the deal. Uh, he's the prototype for the first Adam. And so I have this conversation with him. So who, which came first? You know, the chicken or the egg kind of situation was Jesus in his, in his incarnated form already because he's outside of space and time. So did he already look like humans? And so we were created after the human image or were we created after his ability to then perceive what the human image would be beforehand? Did I just blow your mind today? Maybe you don't even know what I'm talking about. That's okay. It's a digression, not the point of today's message. But his existence is wonderfully unusual. His existence is wonderfully unusual in the Trinity. A father, a son, and a spirit all together. Uh, Albert Moeller was talking about this in his podcast just this week. Uh, Three persons in one. He said it's like one, two, three, right? And so I don't know exactly everything he said. I was listening to it while I was getting ready in the morning. I would encourage you to listen to that. It's his Friday briefing, if you want to find that by Albert Moeller. Uh, But it's this uh, trinity, this three in one. How do we understand that? I don't know. I I can't really. There's ways that we try to. uh, They always fall short. You talk about water and ice, steam, liquid form. Well, if you have that strictly, then that's modalism and that's a heresy. So let's uh, avoid that. But it's a good kind of illustration. You have the, the egg, right? You have the shell and the yolk and then the, the white. And so, you know, all those kind of things where you have the mind, the body and the, and the soul of the human, all these things that we use to illustrate that. But can we understand that? Not really, not fully. That's part of what makes him God and us not. His wonderful existence, wonderfully unusual. Uh, next thing is his his wonderfully unusual, his, his wonderfully unusual entrance. We read about that in Luke 2, 8 through 14. 
And now going over that quickly, this is what it says. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord showed around them, and they were filled with great fear, not the angels, the shepherds. The angel said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. Unto us this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then it goes on, it says, and the glory shone around them, all these other heavenly hosts. In verse 13, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. You see, his entrance is unusual. It was foretold hundreds of years earlier. We see that in Isaiah the prophet, and then it happened. Which of us had that? None is the answer. None. And there will never be again. There never was one beforehand, and there never will be another one again. We're talking hundreds of years before. Not only was his birth foretold, but the manner in which he would be born was foretold. Born of a virgin, it says. And then also heralded by angels. So those three things alone, and there are many, many more about his entrance that is interesting and unique and wonderful. But having a birth foretold hundreds of years ahead of time and then born in the way that we know outside of God's divine intervention, scientifically, right? Scientifically impossible. With God, all things are possible. And then heralded by the very hosts of heaven themselves. That is a wonderfully unusual entrance. But it's not only his entrance, it's his exit. Now you may be thinking, well, I don't think dying on the cross was a very wonderful exit. And I would tell you, brother or sister, that wasn't the exit. That was merely intermission, really. I mean, that was just a pause. And what that was, was God's sovereign display of his glory and his power and his provision. The exit was he was raised up into the heavens in his resurrected body in the clouds. And he told them, the way that you've seen me go is the way that I'm coming back. That is his exit, quote unquote. We see that in Acts 1, 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, and they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of the sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood behind them in white robes. And he said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? Can you imagine the situation? I imagine some of them just, yeah, have you ever seen uh, you know, people just completely oblivious to the world around them, and they'll just be sitting there, literally like with their mouths open, or just you know, kind of waiting to see what's going to happen there? They say, why are you looking up this Jesus who is taken from you into heaven will come again in the same way you saw him go into heaven. So again, this was foretold hundreds of years earlier. He suffered more than any human could bear in his crucifixion on the cross. And so one might think that was the exit because he, was, he died. But no, he was raised again. And so in his exit, he then told us again that we were to witness his deity, his sovereignty, his authority. He gave us the Great Commission, and he also gave us an anticipation. Again, this is an amazingly wonderful and unusual exit. For all of us, I, I don't know who it was who said this, but everybody's life is contained in a dash. Perhaps you've seen it. If you go over there in the cemetery, there's a date born, there's a dash, and then there's a date that they exit. 
Everybody's life is contained in that dash. It is only our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ whose life cannot be contained, who is resurrected and is the first fruits, and by his life we too then are ushered in. We are contained in his dash. And praise the Lord that his dash is one of those weird things in geometry, which I don't know what it's called. I think it's just a line, right? Where it extends perpetually in every single direction. Otherwise, it's a ray. I don't know, right? Or a segment. Also, then moving on, he is wonderfully unique. He's wonderfully unique, firstly, in his character. Look at 1 Peter 2, 22, which is going to be on the screen. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. No man was ever like him, and no man will ever be like him again. By the way, he was no mere man, right? He had perfect obedience. Perfect obedience in commission and in omission. I don't know if you know this, but there are sins of commission and there are sins of omission. Let me explain the difference if you don't know those words, that's okay. There are sins that we are actively committing. Those are sins of commission. And there are sins that we commit because we don't do that which we are supposed to do. Those are sins of omission. Jesus was innocent of all of those things. He committed no sin and by the way, he omitted no good work that he was supposed to do. He, so he never sinned by not doing, if that makes sense. His character was wonderfully unique, which is absolutely necessary for us. And also, not only that, but his wonderfully unique in his compassion. Matthew 9, 36 says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 23, 37 says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so his compassion is wonderfully unique. He has compassion toward a helpless people. I don't like this phrase, and people use it often. God helps those who help themselves. Okay, well, who among us can help ourselves? Not me, not when it comes to this. I am a helpless people. I am totally and utterly depraved. I must be a sinner saved by grace because I cannot save myself. He has compassion towards a rebellious people, which I also am very thankful for. He says, how often would I have gathered you together and you were not willing? Brother, sister, I don't know about you. I still struggle to submit to his rules, his regulations. I, I struggle to submit to the idea that I am truly even saved. We are a rebellious people. He has compassion toward a people that are even not yet to come. And praise the Lord for that. Because by the way, in 2 Peter 3.9, we are the people who have not yet come. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so as we go through a time period where we're wondering, Lord, is it bad enough yet? When are you coming back? Understand that the reason he has not came back yet is not because he is slow, but rather he is patient, he is loving, 
He is desirous of all of those who had come to him. That the reason he has not yet come back is not because he doesn't want you or is not ready for you or whatever. It's because there's someone else out there who has not yet believed. And he is unwilling to bring his bride home without every single member of the family. That is a wonderfully unique compassion. And he has given us, and he himself had, a wonderfully unique charge. Luke 19.10 tells us his charge. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. His goal was the Father's glory. His charge was to save you, to save the lost. Not only to save the lost, but to seek the lost. I think it was Edwards that talks about the great hound of heaven. So as we, if we are, if we are saved and we stray from time to time and we feel that guilt and we feel that shame, that is what Edwards would call the great hound of heaven on our trail. So think, if you will, about those old like blue healers or red tick hounds, right? And they'd get on the scent of whatever that was, usually like a, a raccoon or some kind of an animal that they would go or, or back in the day when people had lots of, of money and time and the stuff they would hunt, you know, foxes, right? So they'd have these, they, they would release the hounds and they would go after the foxes and they would call after them, you know, Baloo, Baloo, I don't know if you, I, I see it on cartoons sometimes, so that's probably what they do. You know the fox and the hound, the movie, right? Like that's what they did. And so they, they go after these foxes and the dogs are out, right? And that's who let the dogs out. But also the hound of heaven then <laughs> follows after you and it pursues you. And so what does the text say? The son of man came just to save the lost? No, not just to save the lost, but to seek the lost. What a wonderfully unique charge. And that's the charge he gives us. He tells us to go and to seek, to go and to tell, to preach the gospel, to preach the good news and to teach them. And so then also we see that he is wonderfully unequaled. Firstly, wonderfully unequaled in his preaching. Matthew 7, 28 through 29 says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You see, his preaching was wonderfully unique because he was the Word who became flesh. He was the Word. That's why he could say things, you've heard it was said, but I say to you. Why? Because he is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Because he was one with the Father. Because he wasn't just a mere man, he was... God and man who had been unified together. He was wonderfully unique in his preaching because his preaching had power. I mean, think about this for a minute. The word became, this is crazy. Right? Here, here's another one of those things like what came first, the chicken or the egg? Were, were we created in the image of the incarnate Christ or was he created in the image of man afterward? Or not created, but born into the image. I, I don't, whatever. Here's another one, right? So the word became flesh in Christ, right? I mean, that's, so the word became flesh. That's what it says. But then he was actively recreating the word as he preached it. So he was actively becoming the flesh of which he was preaching as he was teaching in that. But he was wonderfully unique in his preaching because he was the word who became flesh. He was also wonderfully unique in his 
pity. This goes back to things like his compassion, but it's more than that. Luke 23, 34 says, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this is when they were casting lots to divide his garments. Luke 5, 31 through 32 says, Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Matthew 12, 20 says, A bruised reed he will not break. In a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. You see, he sees you in your sin and longs to bring you to freedom. He is wonderfully unique in his pity because uh, he is under, uh, wonderfully un, uh, unequaled in his pity because unlike us, unlike us, he does not recoil at the level of human filth. He told us that parable. You remember that parable of the guy who was uh, traveling on the road and he got beat up and then the two religious people came and they saw him and they walked by on the other side and it was that Samaritan that picked him up and put him on his horse and took him to the inn and then paid for all that. Jesus' pity is so deep that he can look inside of each one of our hearts and our minds and see the depth of our wickedness and still say, Father, forgive them. Praise God for Christ's pity. Praise God for his pity. Because remember what we talked about, right? This is the Trinity, God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, all in one. And so as Christ took on flesh, fully God, fully man, this was the Father's pity upon a wretched creation. but it's even better than pity. Because pity doesn't really do anything. Pity isn't an active thing always. Does that make sense? What we need more than pity is this next, what Christ brings is his wonderfully unequaled pardon. Pity may be what drove him, but the pardon is what we need. We need a wonderfully unequaled pardon because our sin is so grievous. Acts 4.12 tells us, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is a wonderfully unique pardon because of what Scripture says. There is no other place for this. We can't be good enough. We can't pay enough. We can't not sin for long enough. There is nothing that we can do. It has to be this pardon and this pardon alone. And that's what I guess makes Christians bigots because we do not accept anything other than Christ. Which is crazy to me because if any answer is right, then I should have got way better grades in math class. If there's only one right answer, then there's only one right answer. And his pardon is what is necessary. 1 John 1.9 tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He not only has pity, but he 
interacts with us through that pity, through the Son, by will of the Father, with the Spirit to bring us pardon. So thank you for sitting so patiently through the first half of today's message. Here's the second half, right? He's wonderful, but he's not only wonderful, he's also a counselor. Now the word counselor, there's different definitions for this. It's a senior office in a diplomatic service, right? That's a counselor or a chancellor, that kind of thing. It is a trial lawyer, the counsel, right? It is a person trained to give advice, which is what all of you thought immediately and forgot about these other definitions. It's okay. It's also a person who supervises children at camp. All of those are counselors, right? And each of them means slightly different things, and they use this word in slightly different ways. But all of them hold true to the case. Jesus is a wonderful counselor. He counsels us. We see that by the counsel of his life in how to relate. John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. Or, I'm not going to read it, but you could read it on your own, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7 of those chapters. He teaches us how to relate. Jesus teaches us that we are sojourners in this world, that this world is not my home. That although I love to live here and I can take pride and joy and pleasure in my time here through all kinds of various means, that this is simply a terminal for where I am eventually to end up. This is a bus stop along the way to my final destination. That this is the preparatory grounds for that which I will eventually be. And so he tells us how to relate. How to relate to one another as we're here. A family under the headship of Christ. He also teaches us, though, how to relate to a holy God. I'm pretty sure it was also Edwards who preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You see, we need to know how to relate to a God who is holy, who is righteous, who is just. We need to understand our place. We need to know how to relate horizontally and vertically, and Jesus counsels us through his life. Through his life, he also counsels us how to repent. Because as he treats us, as he teaches us how to relate, we must then also understand that we need to repent. Now, you might be saying, how does Jesus teach us that? He never had to repent for anything. Okay, fair enough. But he teaches us through things like John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. He teaches us we need to repent by showing us that we are going the wrong way. He teaches us to repent just like your, I know I'm dating myself, Garmin used to teach you that you need to be redirected. Right? Redirecting, redirecting. I distinctly remember when we were in Chicago, Elisa and I, I think it was first year anniversary or something like that, right? We drove to Chicago and we took our Garmin, because that's how old we are, right? We took our Garmin and uh, we put it on walk mode and we walked around Chicago and we had a blast. And then when it was time to leave Chicago, we left Chicago and it kept making me turn down all these one-way streets to the point that I was like, this thing's about to get thrown out of the window. And Elisa took it and, and then gently said, did you ever turn it back off walking mode? And I was like, By Jesus showing us the right way, he teaches us we need to repent. 
By Jesus showing us how we relate, he teaches us how we need to repent to God and to man, horizontal and vertical. Matthew eleven twenty nine. take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. He teaches us how to repent because he is a trained advisor. He also teaches us by the counsel of his death. John three sixteen through 18, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So through Christ's death, he counsels us about God's justice. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And then also, still thinking about John 3.16-18, that whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. He counsels us in his death of God's justice because all of us, I'm sure, or I'm hoping fewer and fewer, but let's just be honest with how the world is. A lot of us have something in our life that we think to ourselves, justice will never happen. We think in man's eyes, justice has been robbed. But in God's eyes, that's not true. The counsel of his death teaches us that God is just. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is sin must be punished. Sin will be punished. Sin is either punished in Christ Jesus on the cross that has happened or sin will be punished in the sinner. So in his death, the Lord Jesus counsels us that God is just. But he also, at the same time, in the same area, also counsels us that God's of God's love. In that same situation, Jesus' death is both the worst and the wickedest day of all human history and at the same time, the best and most glorious time in human history. Because it was not only when the perfect spotless lamb was slain by a wicked world, which makes it the worst, but it was when the perfect spotless sacrifice was given, which makes it the best. You see, in the counsel of his death, he teaches us God's justice and God's love. 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. This is where our need for a Savior and His provision of salvation meet. And so Jesus counsels us in His life, and He counsels us in His death, but he also counsels us in his resurrection. In Acts 10, 39 through 41, it says, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. 
And it also talks about this number here. You, you, you might be thinking, oh, this is just talking about those 11. You would think 12, but Judas has, has committed suicide at this point, and so just the 11. No, no, no. There's more than that. Scripture, if you read it out, he talks about for 40 days he would appear to them regularly at different times. And it's important that he says, who ate and drank with him, because you need to know that this is not just some kind of a psychotic figment of their imagination or a hallucination, that there was really fish that they ate, and then the fish was really gone. Like it literally happened. So he teaches us through the counsel of his resurrection, and the things that he does by this is one, he points your way. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. But if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as Adam, for I'm sorry, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. He points our way just like Lewis and Clark did. Are you familiar with that story? They came over here. I, I know like the story in general, but I also know, uh, you know, Pocahontas because I'm a child, right? And so you have that Disney movie, and you have Lewis and Clark that come with, so in, in between history and real stuff that I learned when I was in school, and then Disney, I'm going to put this together for you. Google me and correct me if I'm wrong. But you have these guys who come over, and they have to figure out what this nation is that they're trying to, to conquer and to, to redeem for their, for their own use and things like that. And so they begin this journey, and they start from one end, and they walk all the way through, and they need a guide. They need someone to point the way because they have no idea what they're getting into. We too need somebody to point the way. We need somebody to map out for us. We need somebody to show us what it is we're going toward, where we're going to. We need a light on our path and a way to get there. Jesus is, counsels us in pointing the way. But he also counsels us as he not only points the way, but uh, yeah, prepares your place. John 14, 2 through 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Now here, I can't help but think of camp counselors. If you've ever been to camp, and I hope that you have, I hope your experience was like mine. When I got to camp, I took my bag of stuff, you know, my, my bag of whatever I was bringing, my pillow and my rucksack, I threw it on the, on the bunk, and then I went and I did all my stuff. Later that night, I came and I, I made my bed and I went to sleep. I woke up the next morning, I, I ate, and then I did all the other stuff. And then later that night, I came back, and I slept, and I woke up the next morning, and I did all my stuff. Everything was prepared for me. All I did was show up. Everything was ready. As a kid, like, you totally take that for granted now, right? As an adult, wouldn't you love that? Isn't that why we go on, like, vacations and things like that? You mean I just show up to this house, and I sleep in the bed, and then I don't do the laundry or make the bed, and then I come back, and the bed's made, which they don't do anymore after COVID, which is super lame, right? I mean, it's like, you know... I've paid for you to do this, you know. But he prepares a place for us. And he prepares your place. 
And I don't know about you, but when people who love you prepare the place, it's so much better than people who don't love you or people who don't know you, right? For example, if I was going to prepare something for Elisa, I know her. I know what she likes. I know what she doesn't like, right? I would seek to prepare something for her that she would enjoy because I love her. Can you even begin to fathom then what Jesus must be doing to prepare a place for you whom he loves and died for so that you could spend the rest of eternity with him? You are wanted. You belong. Maybe that's what you need to hear this morning. Maybe you're here and you're wondering even if you're wanted. You are. You are wanted. And you belong in Christ Jesus. And he is preparing a place because you are wanted and because you belong. But also then he counsels us in his resurrection because he pleads your case. He is our trial lawyer. Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Or Hebrews 7, 25. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Intercession is this idea of standing in the gap. In my mind, I picture it like you have God the Father on his high holy seat, the judge of all the courtroom, right? You have the uh, witness box, the cloud of witnesses, the, the ones who are in the jury seats, right, who are up there, who have, uh, are hearing the case. You have the prosecuting attorney, which is Satan, who is standing there with, with his uh, counsel of also prosecuting attorneys, his, the firm that he works with, with all the demons and uh, fallen angels that are there. And then you have the defendant attorney, who is Christ Jesus. And Satan's case is strong, I mean, man, is it strong. He's like, all right, God, here's the deal. I've got written testimony. I've got eyewitness accounts. I've got video evidence. And by the way, uh, you've heard from the, 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 the defendant as he has told you and told the rest of the courtroom that he, 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 I, my accusations are absolutely right and he is completely guilty of all of these things. He has transgressed your law multiple times through multiple days, through multiple years. In fact, if we look at the defendant's case, we cannot find a single day of which he would be not guilty of upholding your law. I'm going to rest. And then Jesus gets up and he says, God, Satan's accusations are absolutely right. There has never been a single day that this individual has kept your law. In fact, they are completely and utterly depraved and deserve eternal damnation. But I love them and I died for them. I rest my case. And the jury says, it's unanimous, he's not guilty. All right, we're going to let him in here. And God bangs the gavel and it is done. Christ pleads your case by his resurrection. Not only because he was straight up raised from the dead, and so he shows that he has defeated sin and death, but more than that, Scripture tells us he literally stands before the Father interceding and making intercessions on your behalf. 
on a moment-to-moment, day-by-day basis. Yeah, that is a good spot for an amen. Thank you, sister. But he also, and I think finally, he counsels us by his resurrection by preserving your soul. Hebrews 6, 17 through 19 says, So when God desired to show show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Christ counsels us by his resurrection because in it he preserves your soul. Hebrews 7.22 says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. I don't know about you, but I have to say, as Isaiah did, that for us a child is born and to us a son is given The government shall be upon his shoulders, and I, for one, will call him Wonderful Counselor. And I pray that you would too. Uh, Let's pray. 